Good afternoon. It's Monday the 12th of June 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host today, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be joined by David Scott and Mark Anderson. Uh, now, we're going to kick uh, straight off with the BBC's hit piece on the light newspaper. Um, so let's uh, pop this Pop that up on screen. And uh, well, this is what it says. The light inside the UK's conspiracy theory newspaper that shares violence and hate. Um, that really uh, is, uh, is quite a damning statement on this newspaper and all the good work that it's done. Um, but if we consider some of the comments that are made in this article, well, obviously it's conspiracy theorist. Um, it's sharing violence and hate. And uh, we've got uh, Telegram that's also sharing right-wing extremism. Is it possible to just bring me back on camera, please? That's better so I can see the audience, as it were. Um, we've got uh, a lot of, um, of effort to uh, suggest to the audience that the light newspaper is linked through to extremist groups in Germany. Um, what else have we got? Uh, well, King's College has got involved because they said, yes, this newspaper well, may well affect the views of people. And uh, also we've got a statement by Matt Jukes, who's the uh, head of the counterterrorism unit. And he also says that conspiracy theories can well be linked to extremism. So, David, I'm going to pass this over to you because you've also had a read of this article. Um, but we know a little bit about what the, uh, the light is up to. We've seen some really good additions. Uh, but according to Mariana Spring and the BBC, it's all about hate and extremism. It was a remarkable piece of work because it didn't have any pretense at being reasonable. It was out-and-out -out state propaganda. You know, it was, oh, you know, they're, they're sceptical about, about climate change. Yeah, and, oh, this is bad. It was just, we must accept every talking point, every narrative that the state provides. That is the truth. You have a single source of, source of truth. It's the state. The BBC is its, is its mouthpiece. And then... The attack was all, it was kind of innuendo. Oh, they tweeted something that we are calling far right. That makes them far right. Oh, they've talked to an organization in Germany. Ooh, Germany. It's all of this kind of, kind of dog whistle nastiness. It was very, very low grade. And what wasn't there was, this is what the light newspaper believes. This is what they say. Here are major quotes. Here are the major campaigns. Um, we think they're right on this. We think they're wrong on that. There was none of that, what you would tell journalism, going on. It was simply a hit piece. It was, it was absolutely dreadful. David, thank you for that. Well, I think we might have Darren, uh, Darren Nesbitt, the editor, with us. Um, we had a few problems there. Darren, can you hear me? Uh, I can see you, but I can't hear you, I'm afraid. Oh, that's typical, isn't it? Say that again. Okay. <laughs> What's your response? What's your response to uh, Mariana Springs' hit piece? Well, yeah, David David had it right. Look, the, the <laughs> I mean, there's two, two major things. One was they didn't cover any of the articles, any of the things that we talk about any of the real-world harms that governments, corporations and media are causing across the world to ordinary people. Um, and the other thing is theoretical harm 
you know, um, associating the paper with somebody who might have once, you know, said something angry somewhere and they, and they once distributed a light paper. It's really low quality journalism. And when they asked us for a quote in the last couple of days, I just said, you're not a journalist, you're, you're simply a propagandist. Um, we're happy to print any corrections, you know, if we've got anything wrong, but over, after th over 30 issues, um, not a single time have we had to say, oh, yeah, this article's wrong. Because obviously they're all they're all sourced from official stats by very very well qualified professional people, um, and this is clearly you know the, the state trying to lash back um, at ordinary people, getting the truth out there and trying to help uh, people's lives and help them avoid harm. Okay, well um, I know that on. Um YouTube, I think it's on YouTube, you've got a full uh, video of that interview with Mariana Spring, so people can actually see how it was conducted and what you said at the time, and then compare it with the article. Uh, but to me, certainly the article doesn't show any of the good productive work that you've done. This is, as David Scott has just said, it's about in innuendo. Um, Darren, we're very short for time today, unfortunately, but um, do you think that you will entertain Mariana Spring again? Would you have her back to, uh, to have further <laughs> discussion? Not really. I mean, you can see the full three-hour uh, interview with her. It's, it's on Rumble. And it's called, you know, if you put Mariana Spring in Conspiracy Land in whatever you're searching. Um, um, will we have a back? Well, look, you know, she accuses us of, of promoting violence when we when we never ever do promoting hate when we never ever do. Um, she asked me that question ten ten or twelve times in the interview, and you know, you, you can see the responses for yourself. So then, produce this paper. I mean, you know, it, it, it's possible it could be libelous. It depends whether advertisers start pulling out and it starts affecting our business, or it goes the other way. And people go, oh, there's a, there's a truth paper out there. Let's, you know, we want to support it. We want to be part of that. A friend rang me, you know, an hour after I think the, the BBC uh, put that thing out this morning and said, um, you know, my, my boss has asked me not to bring the light paper in anymore. So it could well, it could well affect us. Um, but like I say, you know, um, one, one of the easiest ways of propaganda is to accuse the other side of, of what you're doing yourself. And, and she seems to forget that, you know, the whole nation was harassed and bullied and mocked um, into, into following all these nonsensical measures and, and, and still are. It's going, to, it's going to carry on with climate change as well. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, everybody can look for the evidence for themselves, see the light papers, see what we actually write about, see the articles for themselves. Obviously, if you are you know, aware of what's going on, help us get involved, come and write for us um, and obviously help distribute the paper and tell people about it. Okay, Darren, thank you very much for that. Um, well, you've, you've put out a lot of material. I've certainly read some very good articles. I also believe that uh, if you're publishing, you ought to be able to report what people are saying with appropriate commentary on it. But according to the BBC, you can only print, you can only report what the BBC says you can. Now, what I've just said, is that an extremist statement? Well, let's turn, for, turn to the Daily Telegraph for some support, because this is what was going on over the weekend. And I, I, can, only, I can only do the tip of the iceberg here. This is the Telegraph. Here's the headline, monitoring unit made hourly calls to flag COVID dissent. And uh, if I go on to the next uh, part of the paper, um, this was uh, a full page article effectively, Whitehall is all about control, information is power. 
And uh, David Davis starring here because he discovered that uh, because he'd been putting out tweets questioning the modelling put forward at the start of the pandemic, uh, he'd been picked up by the government's counter disinformation unit and they were tracking him and the questions that he was asking. And if you get into this article, you find that actually what we've got is a very pernicious unit, which has been created at the heart of government. And uh, this is monitoring anybody who was brave enough to start using any form of social media to challenge any of the government's COVID or lockdown policies. So as you can see, this is a major article and uh, uh, it's just incredible that uh, it's taken this length of time for the tele tele Telegraph to actually get this uh, printed out. So if I take you on a little bit more, um, well, here we go with a double page spread. The BBC has a reputation as a truth teller, but in COVID it did what the government wanted. And this is the meat of the article that this particular unit, uh, I'm going to give you a diagram in a minute to explain this a bit more, uh, but this unit was working alongside the Conservative Party. I'm very sure the Cabinet Office would have been involved, but also the BBC and Ofcom. It was tracking anybody that they considered to be uh, a threat to the government's narrative. And what were they then doing? They were talking to the uh, big, <coughs> excuse me, the big uh, internet providers in order to get that dangerous material taken down. So if I bring you on to this uh, particular lady, just to see, well, we're really emphasizing how the BBC sees itself. This is Jessica Cecil, um, who's director of BBC Trusted News Initiative. So the BBC working to spy on anybody who's challenging on one hand, but on the other hand, uh, what's happening here is they regard themselves automatically as trusted news. The hypocrisy is really incredible. And uh, this is a little bit of detailed comment from the uh, Telegraph here. Um, so they're talking about BBC journalists who realised that this control was going on. They couldn't come out and speak about it because of the climate of fear. And uh, it says that uh, journalists who spoke to the editorial team um, got a response that was patronising and humiliating. And uh, basically, the gist of the editorial response was, get back in your box. You can't have an opinion. Now, remember, this is the BBC. And uh, if we have a look at another article that appeared in the Sunday Telegraph, this one made me smile because here, apparently, the BBC is recruiting to curb liberal bias. So uh, they're going to rec recruit new staff in order to spread their viewpoints and get rid of liberal bias. But as I put in the top right hand corner of the screen, the problem with that is the fact that the bias is at the very top of the BBC. It's not, as we can see by the protesting journalists within the body of the BBC itself. But um, part of that article um, <laughs> I've used the expression made me smile, but black humour. Uh, let's bring up this and you can see what I saw. A midterm review of BBC's Royal Charter is examining whether the corporation is sufficiently impartial and the extent to which it's representing audiences from working class backgrounds. And I'll bring the other one in here. John Humphreys, the former Radio 4 presenter, has described 
an institutional liberal bias of the broadcaster and said that senior BBC figures were devastated by the Leave side victory in the Brexit referendum. What I drew from this is that if you dare criticise the uh, BBC, um, basically you're going to be put in the extremist bracket, but you're probably also working class. So really, really unpleasant stuff. But let's just have a look at uh, what happens when people ask for information about the BBC itself. Um, and this is a freedom of information request, uh, which is asking questions about Verify, BBC Verify. And if we remember, uh, BBC Verify says about itself that it's transparency in action, fact-checking, verifying video, countering disinformation, analysing data and explaining complex stories in the pursuit of truth. Um, this is our promise to consumers. We understand that their trust must be earned and we will show them that we're doing that each and every day. So the BBC puffed up in its own importance. Somebody sent in a freedom of information. Uh, let's have a look at what happened. Well, the answer was that there was no verifying BBC Verify. So in went the freedom of information request. And this is what it asked for, a structure chart which names the BBC Verify staff. Please provide a budget for BBC Verify. Please provide the revised information that was used to justify the setting up of Verify. And uh, if we bring in part of the answer, I'll just expand that on screen for you. Um, basically, the BBC says, BBC's response is, whoa, we can't answer this question because BBC output or information that supports and is closely associated with these created creative activities um, is held for the purposes of art, journalism or literature and we don't have to give it to you. So at the end of the day, um, here we are with BBC Legal. They're simply saying, go away. We don't have to talk to you. And uh, if I just do this very quickly on screen, HM government, of course, at the top, uh, they're spying, they're using propaganda and censorship, but it's in a network. The Conservatives at the belly of the beast, the Cabinet Office, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, and the Secret Intelligence Services. But remember that the Conservative Democrats have already said that basically the Conservative Party is not democratic, so we can't trust it. They've also, uh, sorry, people in their meetings have alleged that six people are in control of the Tories. But that very party has set up this uh, pernicious counter disinformation unit. And with it is a counter disinformation policy forum. Who's involved? Uh, well, of course, BBC was involved in it, but also Ofcom. And, uh, and then if we consider, we've now got Mariana Spring setting up fake accounts and uh, she's censoring and vilifying anybody who's involved in free speech. So remember, BBC monitoring is spying on overseas media and feeding that back to the intelligence services. BBC Media Action um, is, a is setting up clone media channels. Uh, it's also fomenting internal dissent as it did in Syria and we are very sure that will be happening in Ukraine. 
BBC propaganda is pushed into the host country and it's reframing audiences. And let's not forget 77 Brigade, which has been in the COVID mix. And over on the left of your screen, I'm going to remind people that the very same Conservative Party uh, was using the Behavioural Insights team uh, and behavioural change in order to stop people challenging the government's agenda. So do we trust our government? No. Do we trust the BBC? Certainly not. They're both working together. David, over to you. Uh, yes, well, let's move on to uh, matters in Scotland. And it's been quite a weekend. Um, we have here a uh, press release from, uh, from Police Scotland. Uh, investigation into Scottish National Party funding and finances. Women arrested. Um, and we can just pop that on the screen. There we go. And the 52-year-old woman uh, was today, Sunday the 11th, June 2023, arrested as a suspect in connection with an ongoing investigation into the funding and finances of the Scottish National Party. She, at the time of the release, she was in custody and being questioned. A report will be sent to the Procurator Fiscal. Now, this, of course, uh, relates to the £666,000 donated by supporters of independence for a ring fence fund in, uh, to fund the next independence referendum campaign, which seems to have rather been redistributed. And that's the whole uh, subject of the investigation. Um, now, as it happened, by happy coincidence, a UK column um, reporter, Di, was uh, viewing a film called uh, Adult Human Female with a group of women in Scotland called Women Won't Wished, who have been campaigning essentially to have their voices heard, to have their opinions heard, in an environment where the, the state, the establishment, and Nicola Sturgeon personally has been telling them their opinions are invalid over gender recognition, and what it is to be a woman. And they don't think their, their opinions are invalid and they want to be heard. So they were watching this film in a, in a pub in Coatbridge because they tried twice to watch it in a university town in Scotland and the activists had, had basically prevented the film be, to be, from being shown. But in a gritty working class town in central Scotland, the activists didn't show up and the women could actually see the film they wanted to watch. This next video, this is what they did when they heard the news that Nicola Sturgeon had been arrested. Scotland uh, letting you know how they feel. Now, the political reaction to this has been very interesting. Here we see the BBC reporting uh, that uh, former Justice Secretary, now Alba MP Kenny McCaskill, said the SNP is in danger of being a drag upon the cause of independence. Uh, their vote is going to be diminishing. They're under the cloud. It's not going away anytime soon. Um, this will tarnish the independence cause. 
What we require is to have a firewall between the SNP and the independence movement. I wonder what that will look like. Um, we've got also Jackie Bailey, uh, Deputy Head of uh, Labour in Scotland, um, saying that uh, Hamza Yusuf should suspend Ms Sturgeon uh, because of the ongoing investigation. Uh, I've no doubt in my mind he absolutely needs to do that, she said. And um, recent candidate for uh, leadership of the SNP, Ash Reagan, um, said uh, the probe into the party's finances could be a distraction. Oh, gosh, you think? Could be a distraction, adding, I think Nicola Sturgeon should perhaps consider voluntarily resigning her SNP membership until this can be cleared up. Resigning would reaffirm Ms Sturgeon's commitment to the principles of the party. So the best thing Ms Sturgeon can do for the party is to resign. That's what it's come to politically. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon uh, protests her innocence. Uh, she said... Uh, to find myself in the situation I did today when I am certain I've committed no offence is both a shock and deeply di distressing. Uh, and uh, the national um, SNP fanzine uh, quotes as, I know beyond doubt that I'm innocent. Uh, it's, it's rather prejudging the issue, using language that relates to courtroom, I think. But um, she's obviously protesting her innocence. Uh, the whole thing will be before the Procurator Fiscal and may or may not come to court. And we will We will see. Uh, David, incredible events because, of course, over the weekend there was hu a huge amount of material about Boris Johnson and what was happening with the Conservatives. And then uh, the news came through Sunday, I think it was, about uh, Nicola Sturgeon. Um, do you think women dancing in a pub in joy at hearing the news would be hate dancing for Mariana Spring? Well, it, it, it's, it's in a working class town. So Mariana Spring would never know because she'd never go to a working class town. <laughs> OK, thank you for that. Now, um, we have been supporting over a, uh, well, a number of months, um, the very brave ladies and men, because there's some men in the team as well, from Public Child Protection Wales. And we're delighted to have Kim Isherwood, Isherwood with us today, who's going to give us a little update on how things are going. So, Kim, welcome to UK Column News. Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much for this opportunity. OK, so tell us, how, how are things going at the moment? I'll do the, one of the critical things. You've been working very hard to raise money to cover all of the court expenses and uh, uh, potential fees for, from your actions. Uh, you were looking at £100,000. We've tried to give you some help with that. How is the fundraising going? Well, last time we was on UK column, we managed to raise £10,000 in 24 hours, and that's all because of the UK column viewers. So that's fantastic. We've, we've now paid um, £99,000 in legal fees as of today, and we've got another £10,000 to go. So an expensive process, but thanks to UK column and the viewers, we are, um, we are getting there, you know, so that's that's really, really wonderful, that is. Okay, so Kim, t tell us, how, how do you see the battle at the moment? You've done all this work. You've been rebuffed in the, in the courts. You've had no backup from the BBC, of course. But how, how do you see things going at the moment? What's your plan? Okay, so bad news first. Um, obviously, the courts have decided that we don't have any parental rights at all over our children's education. It's concerning that it's around the subject of RSE with these unethical political ideologies. So the bad news is this case law can 
and will be applied to the whole of the UK. So the UK need to be aware of this. They need to read up on it. I, I suggest everybody go to our website and find out what's going on. That's the bad news. So the government are coming after us for this money. They've removed our parental rights for this unethical um, ideology. But the good news is this. We've raised a lot of awareness. A lot of people are aware. The Prime Minister has said he's doing an inquiry into RSE. We believe that is lip service. But from this um, talk in Parliament, what has happened, Brian, is all of our information has been proven as fact. So we've proven that everything that we've put out there is fact, not just in the media now, it's in the High Court as well. It's all been proven as fact. So that gives us grounds then to fight. You know, we're no longer this misinformation that they are labelling us. We've created this case law, which um, which reinforces the fact they cannot infringe on your philosophical and religious beliefs. They've also said everything has to be developmentally appropriate. So as parents, we can push for an assessment tool for this. We know that doesn't exist. And now we're going UK-wide. So we did plan on starting small, then taking them all. But as this case law can and will be applied to the whole of the UK, we've got no choice now but to step it up a notch. So we are going to, we've got um, lots of different small court cases going on against teachers who are um, putting this education onto children that's damaging them, going against the parents' religious and philosophical beliefs. We're also challenging them on the lesson resources as well. And we will be in Parliament Square on the 13th of September to remind Rishi Sunak that we are watching. So this is going UK-wide now, Brian. We really are stepping up our game. What the courts have done is disappointing, but it was expected. We only went down this route simply to show the public what was going on. They needed to experience this deceit for themselves to, to truly understand the magnitude of it. So, yes, we have lost our parental opt-out. Yes, we have got a massive bill. They are threatening to remove our assets. If we were homeowners, that would mean they would take our homes. But as it stands now, they're after our furniture. But we don't mind taking these blows because, like I keep saying, this is just a demonstration to the rest of the UK of what the government and the court system is actually up to right now. Kim, excellent. Thank you very much for giving us uh, that update and summary. And we'll just put on screen um, the public child protection site so people can go and see that. And if you're somebody who feels that you can um, make a donation to um, Public Child Protection Wales, obviously to cover that last £10,000 is very important. Kim, we'll leave it there, but well done to you and the team for all the work. Um, now, we'll pass over to you, um, David, and uh, you're looking at matters to do with teaching in Scotland. Yes, more concerning news. Uh, this is the uh, introduction of critical race theory into Scottish education in the same way that it was introduced into United States education and from the same sources. Um, that is through teacher training. So here we have the Scottish Council of Deans of Education. They've, they've published the National Anti-Racism Framework, the National Anti-Racism Framework for Initial Teacher Education. And it's notable that this has been endorsed by every university who is involved in teacher training in, in Scotland, from University of Aberdeen to the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland and everything in between. Everybody signs up, up to this. There is no opposition. There's not a single voice raised 
uh, an objection. Now, let's have a look at what's involved here. So they write that racism exists on our campuses and in our society, so we must reject it in all its forms. All right? Now, they then say teaching in a, in a diverse Scotland. The publication of teaching in a diverse Scotland was in response to a national commitment from the Scottish Government to increase the number of BME teachers across Scotland's schools. Now, I do point out that Scotland is 94.5% white. Um, so the diverse Scotland they're talking about is something that they're maybe trying to create rather than so much exists. Um, the document then goes on and it gets it goes down every cultural Marxist critical race theory uh, line that, that that exists. For example, it writes, um, this framework offers an opportunity to consider structural changes to teacher education with clear critical guidance leading to tangible outcomes. These changes aim to disrupt the centrality of whiteness and enable different ways of seeing, thinking, and doing. So they're changing how the student teachers think and perceive the world. This is close to brainwashing. It is certainly a religion. That's what is now being inculcated into student teachers. And you better agree if you're a student teacher, otherwise no career for you. Um, and uh, it goes on here, what does anti-racist um, initial teacher education look like? Well, amongst mm -hmm. other things, you have to understand the impact of whiteness. Um, you have to consider the ways in which race and race racism intersect with other factors, such as class, gender, and sexuality. So that's intersectionality. Uh, moving on, there's a framework overview here. Ensuring an anti-racist consciousness in the IT processes and practices. Now, you might think that's strange language, but of course, this is cultural Marxism. Remember when it used to be class consciousness? It's the same idea. It's looking to essentially destroy Western civilization and build the Marxist utopia on its ruins. So we must do this by getting an anti-racist consciousness into the school teachers. Teacher educators need to engage with issues of inclusion, representation, decolonization, Anti-racist pedagogy is not about simply including racial content into programs and curriculum. It's how one teaches and continues the process of applying an anti-racist consciousness into programs, pedagogy, and interactions with colleagues and students. This is activism, and it's lifelong. There is no end to this. Um, so they continue. Uh, they've got to explore the origins and usefulness of terminology, such as radicalization, microaggressions. Uh, microaggressions, colour blindness, if you don't see colour, that makes you racist, incidentally, uh, fragility, privilege, whiteness, uh, and on it goes. Now, um, and looking, I, I picked one of the authors that, that is referenced in this document as sort of further reading. So um, uh, this is uh, a woman called Brie Pykower, right? So American, like a lot of these authors, uh, the the uh, the uh, Scottish document quoted her uh, work, the unexamined whiteness of teaching, how white teachers maintain uh, and enact dominant racial ideologies. Right. So this is highly racially charged language. Right. Uh, so looking at her uh, work, she also wrote uh, a piece called "We Are Victorious: Educator Activism as a Shared Struggle for Human Being." So. We're talking about a war, she's talking about being victorious, and we're talking about activism. 
Um, so this article shares national modes of uh, educational activism that centre the experiences of people of colour. Our aim is to complicate and extend the definition of act activism as a shared struggle for the right to feel human. So this is expansionist, uh, it's to take over every aspect of your life and it's a lifelong issue. Now you might think for, with a background like that or a, or a, 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 a writing um, schedule like that, Miss um, Pycower might be, well, not beige. Well, you'd be wrong. Um, here she is here and uh, other things that she's written, centering demands and vision of the Black Lives Matter movement in teacher education and uh, the unexamined whiteness of teaching, how white teachers maintain and enact dominant racial ideologies. That's the one that was referred to in the, the Scottish document. So this is the ideology, virulently cultural Marxist, um, seeking to uh, essentially destroy the culture that uh, we're bringing it into. And every Scottish university has endorsed this. This is a wonderful idea. Nobody thinks there's any problem or nobody's brave enough to say. Um, and it's not just the teacher education, it's in other aspects of the universities as well. So here we have the University of West Central Scotland, racism exists. Uh, further and higher education is an integral part of Scottish society and therefore has a key role to play in addressing racism. We're all racist. This is part of the, the, the thing that they're asking us to believe. Note the term black here is used to denote all those people who are positioned outside of whiteness and as a result experience racial disadvantage. Um, so it's not actually about skin colour, it's about something slightly less tangible. It's whoever is defined as a victim and that makes you black. And if you're not, you're white. So. Don't think that you might have a dark coloured skin, but if you're successful, you'll be white in a moment. Don't you worry. And they then talk about this sort of uh, white supremacy to white allyship spectrum. White supremacy includes belief that we live in a meritocracy, would you believe? White indifference includes passionate defender of Western univer universalism, academic freedom, and the right to offend. These are all problems. As the University of West Central Scotland perceives it. Um, and white allyship places the onus on white people to build sustained partnerships with black people, presumably because the racists who write this don't think very much of black people. Um, so it goes on, the anti-racist curriculum, uh, curriculum approaches must value non-European and Western approaches and include scholars, theory and experiences and techniques from the rest of the world. So it's not about the search for truth. It's not about finding the finest ideas. No, 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 no. The ideas have to be held up to a colour chart now. Uh, colleges and universities need to implant reforms in the curriculum to avert uh, from implicit ideas that assert European culture as preeminent. It's a cultural attack. Now, there are a few brave souls speaking out against that, and one is uh, Stuart Wayton, friend of the UK Column, and uh, founder of the Scottish Union for Education. He has a meeting coming up in Glasgow this Thursday at the Tron Church at uh, 6.30. So anyone who can make it along, please go there. It's entitled Let Kids Be Kids, Education Not Indoctrination, and it will be focusing on the sexualisation of children in schools, which is simply another aspect of the same thing. We have queer theory and we have uh, critical race theory, both operating in schools throughout the UK. 
Uh, thank you very much, um, David. And as you were speaking, I was wondering whether that uh, counter disinformation unit buried at the heart of government that we know so little about, are they monitoring anybody who dares to change to, to uh, challenge this sort of policy in schools? And of course, the answer is we simply don't know. Well, if you like what uh, UK Column is doing, then please join us. And of course, you can always help by making a purchase from the shop. And uh, please share material because we're putting this information out with that aim in mind. And uh, we're very happy if people are taking our material. Acknowledge the UK column, please, but share it with other people. Um, now, we've got a couple of adverts here. We've got an interview on the 13th of June at one o'clock. This is the financial and intellectual bankruptcy of the West with Bob Moriarty. That's actually tomorrow, of course. And uh, we've got this one here on the 15th, Sensible Environmentalism with Patrick Moore. And uh, we're also going to give you a reminder to visit the UK Column website and have a look at uh, this um, article, The Root of All Evil by John Waters. So I hope our viewers and supporters can see that the material from UK Column is increasing all the time. And this is simply the result of support that you've given us. And of course, on Wednesday for extra time, we'll be doing a special good news uh, piece for our long term supporters and viewers and listeners. David. I just quick words, uh, the interview with Bob Moriarty there, I challenged him. I said, we're going to talk about everything. And he rose to the challenge wonderfully. It's a, it's a very, very entertaining, fast-paced interview. Uh, it's on tomorrow. I hope people will join for that. Okay, thank you for that. Now, we've got an advert here for the International Centre for 9-11 uh, Justice. This is a new iteration of the former International Centre for 9-11 Studies. It was founded in 2008 by attorney James Gourley. It's being relaunched in partnership with two other cornerstone organisations of the 9-11 Truth Movement, the Journal of 9-11 Studies and the 9-11 Consensus Panel. And the goal of the new organisation is to organise, preserve and present the best 9-11 research of the past two decades, conduct groundbreaking new research and provide renewed direction, energy and unity to the worldwide pursuit of justice as it moves into its third decade. And we'll have some more about this uh, on Wednesday's UK column news. Now, we'll also put this one on screen. This is yellow boards. These are not protests. This is all about engagement. But there's another yellow board event taking place tomorrow in London from 4 p.m. And that's Holloway Road, junction with Seven Sisters Road, close to the Iceland and Lidl uh, N76QA. So if you can be there, please get along and give some support. Now, I would just say very quickly, we're always getting fascinating emails into the UK column. And this one here was on 15 Minute Cities. It's talking about Birmingham City Council. Um, people are saying the madness that you're going to close streets to traffic and then suddenly you're going to be brave enough to let your children play outside when local residents know it's not safe. Uh, I'll leave for you to freeze the information on screen. Um, but we've got 15 minute cities in Birmingham. Uh, we've also got the policy popping up in, in Denmark. And I'm going to say thank you very much for the uh, Danish org 
audience to send this through to us. This is uh, what I found when I went to visit the link. And uh, of course, what this tells us is that the 15 minute policy is uh, not national. This is globalist policy and is affecting countries around the world. We've also got this um, email which uh, came in a couple of days ago. Um, it made me smile, but it's a serious matter. It's the 20, uh, sorry, it's Air Defender 23, which is 25 nations apparently training together in this air defense exercise. I'm not going to read out all the countries, but to me, this is heading towards um, a one world military system. And of course, if everybody's involved in that system, there can be only one enemy, and that's the population themselves. I'll let you think about that one. Now, let's give a welcome to Mark Anderson. Mark, uh, delighted to see you. And uh, you've got some interesting material here, uh, which I'll let you lead off on. Uh, yeah, good day, everybody. Uh, I was honored to be invited to a birthday party of none other than Sheriff Joe Arpaio, one of the uh, legendary lawmen of the United States. And I got kind of a quick pictorial here, kind of a human interest thing. And there he is uh, in this first slide at his desk in his magnificent office in Fountain Hills, Arizona, near Phoenix. I'm staying south of Tucson right now. And uh, the other photo shows me meeting him yesterday after I interviewed him for about four hours about his um, law enforcement career, his accomplishments, highlights, challenges, things like that the time he spent in Turkey as a young man, as a DEA agent, where he went undercover and would actually pose as a drug buyer or a drug transporter, trying to mitigate the heroin trade uh, between Turkey and France. He was actually involved in the real French connection. Uh, a, a very interesting guy, a very brave guy. And so uh, it, it was a great time. Uh, his birthday party was the night before. I've got some pictures on that too. So we can move forward uh, with that. I'll give a little more depth as well. But uh, this is some stuff in his office. As you can see, uh, this was in his famous or infamous tent cities that he set up when he was sheriff for 24 years until about 2016. Vacancy, hard labor, haircuts, bologna sandwiches, uh, educational TV, pink underwear. I'll explain that a little later. Drug testing and no smoking, no movies. No coffee, no girly magazines. If you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime. These signs were actually up, as I understand it, in the tent cities that he put up. And that was a picture of his birthday cake. He turned 91. Now, this next slide, which shows kind of a chain gang, this is when he was sheriff and the tent cities were set up in Maricopa County, the uh, most populated county in Arizona. And the tent cities were a cost-effective way of housing, for example, illegal aliens. Um, he did, Joe, Joe Arpaio did not want to spend tax dollars to build brick-and-mortar buildings. He had leftover surplus from the military, so these tents were put up, and illegal aliens, after they were convicted, were put in these tents. There were other tents for people who were non-illegal aliens, but the illegal aliens, after they were convicted, were put in these tent cities. They weren't mistreated, contrary to media propaganda. And uh, once once everything was processed, they were deported. And so they were not um, bussed and flown into the country the way they are now. So Joe Arpaio was a, uh, a very effective 
agent in making sure that illegal aliens were uh, quickly processed and whenever possible and whenever necessary, actually deported. And so he actually exercised justice that is sorely lacking today, as we've learned on the U.S. southern border. There's another slide there. Um, this is um, uh, moving on. That we, We've seen a couple of the slides from the 10 cities. Uh, this next slide, this is a, just a point of interest for Plymouth, U.K. This is um, Chris Grant at Joe Arpaio's birthday party night before last, and he's holding up a pink outfit. Again, I'll explain the significance of that a little later, mainly an extra. But the uh, the pink underwear, briefly, was when the inmates would, would uh, steal the white underwear and use too many pair, um, they were, you know, getting out of hand. So Joe made the underwear pink so they wouldn't want to steal any more than they had to wear. It, it was kind of a, a, a ploy thing. And uh, Chris Grant is from Plymouth, UK. The, the gentleman we just saw on the screen, uh, and he's now an American citizen, and um, he was basically the MC for Sheriff Joe's um, birthday party. Now, the, this next slide, this is another very interesting thing. Uh, this was announced uh, as kind of a surprise announcement. A very wealthy guy, uh, rumored to be a billionaire, a friend of Sheriff Joe, um, is raising this uh, racehorse that we're seeing in a painting. Um, I believe it's a painting, if not a uh, maybe an embellished photograph. But this racehorse is an actual descendant of the famous horse Secretariat, which was a very uh, well-known uh, and winning racehorse in its day. And the owner of the horse, this wealthy gentleman who's a friend of Sheriff Joe, he announced that um, he named he named the horse itself Sheriff Joe in honor of the lawman. And he looked up in the registry and found that that name was not taken. So this racehorse we're seeing is going to actually um, begin racing, as I understand it, in about three months. And it's actually named Sheriff Joe. We see the sheriff's picture in the corner uh, of the picture of the horse. And so that's kind of something on a lighter note uh, uh, that was announced at the birthday party. So in a few months, we'll see how Sheriff Joe performs in real uh, horse racing. And uh, moving on from there, um, let's see what we have next after that. Uh, Mark, Perhaps that's it. No, that, that, was, uh, that was your se segment there. Um, uh, oh, on the, on okay. The yeah, just sheriff himself. I'm just going to qualify it and say that uh, for people who are perhaps new to the UK column, and, and this is uh, obviously uh, news from America, what we're highlighting here is the fact that uh, while America seems desperately concerned about security in other parts of the world, whether it's the Russians and what's happening in Ukraine or it's China, that on, on your own borders, there's this huge problem uh, with the influx of people and your commentary is uh, talking about how that has been dealt with in the past, and indeed how it could be in the future. So, uh, Mark, we'll bring you we'll bring you back in again shortly. But we need to just move on to um, an update on Ukraine. Now, a lot was happening over the weekend because it became obvious that uh, the Ukrainian offensive was underway. Um, but very quickly, social media. Uh, was providing a lot of information, including video footage and photographs showing that all was not going well. Um, I've just put some 
images on screen to give you an idea of what was happening, but really right along the uh, line of contact between the Ukrainian NATO forces and Russia, uh, there was uh, fighting and uh, the Russians, uh, correction, the Ukrainians made a number of attempts to penetrate the Russian defences. Uh, very quickly, it was interesting to see the Western press starting to uh, talk about his, this is about leopard tanks that have been provided, but the article saying uh, that more are now needed. And something else came up, which I thought was very disturbing, was that there were early calls that NATO members may send troops to Ukraine. So the background was that things did not go well for the Ukrainians in their initial um, uh, actions. And I've got some embedded film clip, which we'll just let run on. I beg your pardon, let's come back, which uh, should just run on screen. No, that's not going to play for some reason. Apologies for that. Uh, but the film clip, what it was showing was essentially that Ukrainian armoured vehicles broke cover. They came out from their um, shielded defensive positions. They left the hedgerows and the moment this happened, they were attacked by Russian anti-tank weapons, by Russian tanks. They were facing the normal, very heavy Russian artillery and they were also uh, facing air attacks, including from anti-armor uh, helicopters on the Russian side. And very quickly, there were a very large number of vehicles that were destroyed. And in, in most cases, that meant the uh, Ukrainian forces turned back. Now, this clip should play, hopefully. And uh, we've got here um, a few Ukrainian soldiers uh, who are lying, but they're obviously clearly very disturbed about the air attacks taking place around them. Пацаны, что там вообще? Что штурмы да? А кацапы текают? Кацапы текают? Давай. Well, the the, uh, the clip says it all, but of course, Ukrainian troops there uh, facing this sort of attack, and also the Russian the Russian troops. And so there is no misunderstanding. I want to say here once again that for UK column, we want to see the fighting stop. We want to see peace in Ukraine, but we believe it's very important to report the truth about what's happening. And the facts are at the moment that uh, it's not going well for the Ukrainians. And of course, the casualties are mounting. Now, let's have a look at this film clip where GB News decided it was going to use the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense uh, spokesman, Yuri Sack, to comment on what was happening. Watch the UK, uh, the GB News uh, lady's face as he starts to answer. Now, talking of Ukraine, I'm delighted to be joined now by Yuri Sack, who's an advisor and spokesperson for the Ukrainian Ministry of Defence. Yuri, hopefully we've got a good, clear line to you. Thanks so much for joining me today. Look, we're reading a lot about the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive, particularly some of the territory that you've advanced in Bakhmut. How's it going? Um, good morning, Camilla, and many thanks for inviting me. Um, it's going uh, according to plan of our military uh, command. Um, 
One thing that I would like to stress from the start is that one of the worst things you can do when you're fighting a war like this is to underestimate your enemy. So we understand, we know from our intelligence that this is an enemy which is capable of committing atrocities, capable of committing terrorist acts, as we have seen with the blowing up of the Kachovka Dam. This is an enemy which, in many respects, has more weapons than the Ukrainian army. It is it outnumbers us and it is an enemy that for the last three if not more months has been building very strongly fortified defense lines i mean some of these defense lines they yeah. are you know reminiscent of world war ii defense lines now nevertheless we as the ukrainian army we are focused on deoccupying our land and just literally 10 minutes before i came on uh, your show uh, we had news that Another village was deoccupied by the Ukrainian army in the east of Ukraine, and the Ukrainian yeah. flag was raised. So uh, we we don't have to already run victory laps, but we have to be quietly optimistic, and we have to trust in the Ukrainian armed forces and in our partners. And I would like to use this opportunity to thank the uh, United Kingdom for standing with Ukraine from day one of this invasion and the fact that you were one of the first countries who yesterday announced that you will be sending Ukraine 16 million pound package uh, uh, funds for dealing with the fallout of the terrorist act in Kachovka Dam. So thank you. Uh well, there were a number of things there, but uh, what I noticed, of course, is the man told us nothing. GB News brought him on screen to tell the British public what was happening with the Ukrainian offensive, and he told us nothing. She knew that, and if you watch, she kept raising her eyebrows because she's more or less saying, well, you're not saying anything. We did a little bit of uh, due diligence on this individual, and uh, let's have a look at what we discovered. So uh, this is the uh, uh, Twitter header. Notice that we got Putin and uh, Hitler uh, juxtaposed in the background, a little bit of subliminal messaging. But this is what I found really offensive. Um, a cartoon Russian animal returns from Ukraine to his loving family. Very, very unpleasant. But apparently this is the sort of man that GB News feels should be giving us the truth about what's happening in Ukraine. And this one also offensive, but in a different way, because we've got the late uh, Queen Elizabeth used as a cartoon to support the Ukraine regime's war. And uh, I just... I just found this was really, really bad taste. David, as always, we're very short of time, but what's your feeling? Lack of data is key. Right? None of the things that matter are being discussed. Uh, the 80% of the casualties come from artillery. Russia had an advantage of between 5 to 1 and 10 to 1 in artillery volume. Has that changed? Apparently not. We've not heard anything about it. It's not being discussed. Things which are significant are never being touched on. Yeah. And, uh, well, we, we've got a man who can put that sort of material out. Now, what is his background? We have covered this before, but let's remind our audience, uh, because he comes from an organisation called CFC Big Ideas. And uh, if we get into that, this is what it's about, an international communications agency or consultancy. Um, here's some details about his part in it. So he's involved with uh, legal backgrounds such as corporate wars and conflicts. 
Um, but he's had an interesting career. He's been at the University of Wolverhampton. Um, he's also been involved with the University of Oxford um, and involved with the Ukrainian parliament. Um, but we asked the question, who is he really? Uh, if we get looking at this CFC organization, we find it's tied in with Pinchuk. And why should we pay attention to this? Well, CFC Big Ideas became our general contractor for the first Ukraine House Davos project. So now we're starting to see that there's a lot more to this organization than uh, meets the eye. And if we have a look at some of the projects from the Pin Pinchuk, we come into this People Society World. And if I expand that and uh, highlight this, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, Open Ukraine Foundation, and the Council on Foreign Relations. So we're very clearly starting to see that this is highly political globalist organization. Could there be more to the spokesman for the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense? And if we look at people alongside him in CFC, this one's particularly interesting uh, because if we highlight some of the details here, uh, we've got a man taking part who, or who took part in the Eastern Partnership International Youth Camp and was also a member of the Ukrainian youth delegation to the NATO headquarters in Belgium. So what was all that about? I'm going to put a label on here that we're watching change agents being used by the West in order to get inside the Ukrainian society to drive society and political events in the way that the West works. And if you want a little bit more detail on this, here's the Eastern Partnership Youth Forum shaping the joint vision for the EU-EAP cooperation. And what are we essentially talking about? Well, if we just take one small segment out of this, ensuring youth participation and involvement of youth organization in, quote, policy making at all levels, establishing a common platform for cooperation to ensure the dialogue between youth representatives and policy makers, capacity building of youth, excuse me, <clears throat> and other civil society organizations in contributing to policy making. So these are the young change agents. What are they going to be doing in Ukraine, unleashing the Western EU agenda? And um, we get another clue for what's happening here, but from CFC Big Ideas, uh, because they're talking about Ukraine's reconstruction plan and global businesses. But they also highlight in the text here that these narratives first appeared in Zelensky's speeches from mid-March 2022. And if we highlight the bottom, um, it's talking about reconstruction efforts. Um, they're not going to restore pre-war status but they're going to achieve a leapfrog situation to advance in several sta stages of economic and governmental development. So this is taking a war-torn Ukraine and putting it into the new globalist agenda. Um, David, if you want to comment on that, please do, and then take us on to your economic segment. Yes, we've got some we've got some economics uh, news. So we have Reuters here reporting uh, UK house prices set to slide by ten percent, uh, according to Moody's, the rating agency. Uh, persistently high inflation and the recent spike in lending rates will trigger a correction in the UK housing market. 
says Moody's Investor Service in a report. Now, uh, that uh, reduction in house values has already started. So we hear, here we see the Financial Times, uh, UK house prices book first annual contraction in a decade. Now, there's two things to note about this chart, which is from Halifax's annual report. Firstly, yes, indeed, we're down about 3% on the year. Uh, and that's the first time it's done that since uh, 2012. But the thing that's really that really stands out is from 2020, from the great COVID lockdown, when the industry of the country stopped, house prices went up and up and up and up and up to an annual rate of 12% increase. This is the economics of insanity, or rather the economics of fake money printing. That's what's been driving the prices up. And what goes up? Well, it won't stay there unless we go back to money printing. Um, on the, uh, we've, we've actually got a little, a little example here of realism from the World Economic Forum, would you believe? Uh, they've put out their forecasts, and even they were forced to admit that the Eurozone fell into recession in the first quarter of the year. Um, they called it a technical recession to make it sound less scary. GDP in the 20-country block fell by 0.1% January to March and also 0.1% it fell in October to December. So that's two successive quarters of contraction, which is a recession. Now, so that sent me looking at how things were going in Europe. So where else would you go but the European Central Bank? Um, so they've published uh, EU structural finance indicators at the end of 2020. Couple of interesting things here. Firstly, the number of bank offices has fallen by more than 5%. So one in every 20 banks across Europe is closed, bank branches. And the number of employees is down as well. So if we look at that, there's a couple of graphs here. So we see the number of bank employees in domestic credit institutions falling steadily from 1999 down to the present day. But also the share of assets held by the five largest banks, uh, that's going up. So what we see here is a reduction in the small banks, just as in the United States. The, the small banks are going, uh, the, the, the number of branches are going, everything's being centralised, and more and more of the total assets are being held by the five largest banks, which uh, takes us into too-big-to-fail territory and um, uh, all the problems that go with it. Also from the European Central Bank, uh, financial stability outlook, they describe it as fragile. I want you to remember that word. That's their word, fragile. Uh, so they're talking about uh, tighter financial conditions, affects household firms, governments, and property markets. Uh, financial markets are vulnerable to disorderly adjustments. That's collapse in your in, in more common common language. Um, and uh, it talks about stretched valuations, so things are overvalued, and low liquidity. So there's not enough cash about. Um, Euro area banks, uh, they, they describe them as robust, but higher funding costs and lower asset quality may weigh on profitability. That last word's a lie. They mean solvency. Um, they, uh, they continue here. Uh, they're talking about the problems with price stability, so they need to do something to rein in inflation, which they caused, of course, with zero interest rate policy. As we tighten monetary policy to reduce high inflation, this can reveal vulnerabilities in the financial system. Um, so they're admitting that things are very dodgy, fragile is their word. Uh, they talk also about investment funds. So far, investment funds have been largely unaffected. This 
could change and suddenly required liquidity, forcing them to sell assets quickly. Because of course, if they sell the assets, they'll realize the huge un unrealized losses are actually there and they will be again in a solvency problem. The euro area real estate markets are undergoing a correction. Commercial real estate markets remain in a downturn. Um, this will uh, test the resilience of investment funds with interest in commercial real estate sector. Just as in the United States, commercial real estate is in uh, something approaching a crisis. And they conclude banks may therefore need to set aside more funds to cover losses and manage the credit risks. So it is quite critical. The overall view from the European Central Bank is don't buy any long playing records. Um, so they talk, in the, and what's the solution? Well, they need a banking union. Um, a common European deposit scheme. And uh, they also say, additionally, vulnerabilities in the non-bank financial sector, that's pension funds to you and I, uh, require a comprehensive, comprehensive and decisive policy response in order to further increase trust in the financial system. Right? So that's saying that they're coming after your pensions, but it's okay if you just have faith, everything will be fine. Everything will not be fine. That is... For, some, for an organization like the European Central Bank, quite an alarmist list of uh, bullet points. Okay, thank you, thank you very much for that. Well, let's bring Mark back on uh, to finish today's news. And you're on a serious uh, subject, Mark, which is abortion. What's been happening in the States? Union and fiscal union were mentioned the better part of 10 years ago at a Brookings Institution meeting that had some links to Bilderberg. So the banking and fiscal union movement has been around quite a while, and it seems like it's coming to a head. Yes, Carbondale, Illinois, is becoming the abortion capital of the United States. Uh, they're estimating that hundreds of thousands of women will flock there to feed the uh, resilient abortion industry. We always must remember that it's an industry. It's not a medical treatment system. It's an industry that is into depopulation. And uh, it does that in many ways. Uh, how This is a headline here uh, from USA Today, how one quiet Illinois college town became the symbol of abortion rights in America. And the real, the real story here is besides Carbondale, a population of about 21,000 becoming this uh, ab abortion industry mecca because other surrounding states, by and large, there's some exceptions, by and large, stricter. Uh, anti-abortion laws in the in the wake of Roe v. Wade going down. So everybody's focusing on this Southern Illinois community. And, and here we have another slide. It just shows the contradictions inherent in the abortion industry. It says choices. But in the abortion industry, there's only one choice. If you're getting into that, and we know what that choice is, it's to kill the pre-born child. And, and we talk a lot about child abuse on UK column, and rightly so. This is the ultimate child abuse, no right to life, uh, the, the silent voice of the child never even given the slightest consideration by the mass media cartel. Uh, you know, there's much could be said about it. Uh, it's a typical uh, story. This next slide, uh, the 26-year-old had never heard of di the distant southern Illinois town of Carbondale, but it became the closest option. So she cobbled together money, found child care, and asked her brother for a ride and set off one early morning to drive north across state lines to this uh, town of Carbondale. And uh, it mentions lower in this article that she could face health risks 
So it just shows the cavalier and, and corrosive philosophy of the media in conjunction with the abortion industry that it, that it steadfastly and unwaveringly supports. Uh, it, the irony there that the woman finds childcare for one of her existing child, uh, children and then goes to uh, summarily get rid of the other one in, uh, through the abortion uh, industry. And what's going on here really is the absolute absence of any other side to the story in this grisly industry. Um, it's a constant and relentless media promotion of that industry to the exclusion of all other points of view. Uh, people that are right to life are considered virtual terrorists. Uh, you're right up there with being a, an election denier and a conspiracy theorist and things like that. So, so it's another way that truth is being stomped on. It's another way that uh, uh, the most vulnerable children of all are being summarily put to death. And um, the the lack of balance and the the uh, the total bias of the media is absolutely off the page. But now we see uh, one town being named the mecca of at least the Midwestern U United States, if not most of the country, as other states, uh, you know, again, mitigate, mitigate against the abortion industry. So it's really the the uh, the uh, hyper insensitivity and um, callousness of the media in conjunction with this industry that I'm highlighting here uh, in the months after Roe v. Wade, um, which which was about mid the middle of last year, was was overturned. So it's it's a it's a story in flux, uh, and this is one of the very most disturbing aspects of that. And uh, we can leave it at that. Uh, the, the The state of Maine is also going full court press to make uh, abortion as liberal as possible. So uh, it, it's a it, it's a frightening thing to watch. There's there's a lot of high points. There's some reassuring points in other states, uh, such as uh, Wisconsin and, and uh, others, but. Um, that's basically it for now, just keeping an eye on this uh, dynamic but disturbing aspect of American life. Okay, thank you very much for that, Mark. Well, it really brings us to the end of the news on a very serious subject. Uh, somebody in the chat box said if they're killing babies in the womb, who won't they kill? Well, I think we're beginning to see nobody is safe with some of the policies that are being enacted on a global basis, but we'll cover more of that in the future. Um, I just wanted to pop this one up on screen because over the, the uh, weekend there was quite a lot of controversy going on uh, around a US Air Force uh, tweet which had a, um, a, a meme of a person saluting a gay pride flag and this had caused quite a, uh, a response from uh, veterans and also serving military people but this is the state of American military at the moment. I'm just going to contrast that with some comment here by Sergei Lavrov, who said Westerners say that everyone must respect the rules-based order. According to these rules, the Russian language and orthodoxy present, present a terrible threat to a world which wants to forget Christian values, Muslim values, and the values of all world religions, replacing them with their rainbow practices. So quite interesting to see those two side by side. Uh, but David, over to you to end <laughs> uh, with this uh, fine little image. Yes, one of the memes that was circulating, there were many memes circulating, uh, once news of Nicola Sturgeon's arrest uh, hit social media, was this one where we have a cartoon Nicola Sturgeon um, a, a, a favourite illustration from the uh, from the from the land of the meme, um, standing before um, 
uh, a, a height measuring board uh, with uh, Police Scotland information in front of her chest in her orange jumpsuit. Um, we'll leave that one there, I think. Okay, thank you very much. Well, I'm going to say thank you to you, David, and also to Mark and, of course, our guests for joining us today. Uh, for the audience, there's a lot going on with the UK column at the moment. You won't have seen everything happening around me today, but there's some quite major changes happening, uh, which is all part of our move to expand. So I'm going to say a little bit of a challenging news programme today. But uh, we've got a lot of good news to give you on that Wednesday Extra. So please join us Wednesday for Extra, but also stay with us today. We'll be coming back in a few minutes for Extra Time today.